Father, we just thank you for your goodness and your great love. Lord, this morning as we finish this, uh, this letter to the Hebrews, I just pray that uh, our hearts are open and ready to receive it. Lord, that uh, we never want to leave the same way we came in. Father, we don't want to come to church as an act of going through the motion, but we want to grow and we want to mature each and every time that we hear your word. Let us have a greater revelation of who you are this morning. And we just thank you for this time that we could spend. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Hallelujah. All right, so we're finishing up chapter 13. Um, quick recap, if you remember, uh, chapter 12 ended with um, some commands from the author to really pursue peace and holiness um, as Christians. And now this, this second half of chapter 13 is where he switches over dealing with commands for our social life, our religious life, and our private life. How many know that, that God has uh, ideas about how you should live your life in all aspects of it? Not just on Sunday morning, but he's concerned with your private life. He's concerned with your religious life, with your social life. God cares what you post on Facebook, just in case you were curious. But as we go on, he's going to continue giving instructions. Remember last week, he started off with, with a few things. And he's going to continue on on that same path. And uh, <clears throat> the reality is, is that as we looked at this book, he really, really hit home the, the reality of the supremacy of Christ, how he's a better high priest, he's a, he's a better sacrifice, he went into better holy places to, to give us complete forgiveness of our sins and only that newness of life. And not just something that had to be repeated over and over. He was a better sacrifice. It happened once and for all. Now, when you understand this, what happened to you when you got born again, when, you're, when you get saved, that means that you should be changed. Your life should be different. If you got born again and you came up to the altar and you had, you had an emotional experience with God and you, you gave your life to him, but you left and your life never changed after that, then all you had was an emotional experience. The truth is, is that when you get born again, your life begins to look different. Now, it may not happen all at once. I know some people that it's like a, a, something snapped and their whole life changed. It didn't happen that way for me. It was a slow burn for me as I was figuring it out. But the thing is, is every day my life looked a little bit different as I began to look more and more like Christ. The reality is, is that we should live a life lived by faith. And in the second half of this chapter, he's going to begin to describe, continue describing what that looks like. So let's go ahead in the first verse here. Um, can you go make sure that the... Oh, wait, it's working. Never mind. We're good to go. Uh, Hebrews 13, chapter 15, it says, Through him then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. How many know that the the need of blood sacrifices uh, is not necessary anymore after Jesus went to the cross. Those sacrifices were a temporary measure. They were a type and shadow. They, they were a picture of what Jesus was going to do, but they were temporary. They were a stopgap. And when Jesus gave his own life on that cross, the need for those sacrifices completely ended. They're no longer necessary. But the thing is, is that sacrifices didn't actually end completely. Now, we don't have to offer the blood of bulls and goats, but it says here is that Christians have a sacrifice that they can continually bring to the Lord, and that's the sacrifice of praise. How many of you guys know that we're actually now called to live our lives as living sacrifices? The life that we live should be a sacrifice, an offering 
to the Lord. And what this means is that when we live our lives, that, that, that we are, are setting aside our own personal desires and making his desires the focus of our life. Now, in case you're worried, it doesn't mean that you don't get to have your own desires. You're still going to have desires. Hopefully, as you begin to walk with Christ, your desires begin to align with his. And you start desiring godly things, things above instead of earthly things. But it doesn't mean that, that, that we're not going to have our own desires. And it doesn't mean that God doesn't want you to have your own desires. God is not a God who's out there just wanting to squash your life and, and, and be a robot for him. But we must realize whose desires have priority in our lives. And if one of your desires conflicts with one of God's desires, guess which one you should set aside? The problem is so many in this life, they decide that, you know, what I want is what we're going to do and, and, and God will just have to wait. But we must realize that his desire should be given priority in our life because our lives should be living sacrifices. The scripture says that you were bought with the price. You are no longer your own. How would you feel if somebody came into your house and took something of yours and began to do whatever they wanted to do with it? You're like, what are you doing? That's mine. You can't just take my stuff and do whatever you want. What if somebody jumped in your car and just begins grinding the gears and running over curbs? You're like, wait a minute. You can't, you can't do that. That's my car. You can't take my car. I wonder if God's like that when we're out there doing stupid stuff. Wait a minute. That's not your body. That's my body. What are you doing that for? Jesus should always take the priority in our lives. He should be the preeminent thing in our lives. And one of the ways that we keep him the priority, the focus in our life, is offering him sacrifices of praise. The New Bible Commentary describes it like this. He says, in language borrowed from Hosea 14.2, this sacrifice is described as the fruit of lips that confess his name. In other words, it is a sacrifice consisting of praise, publicly acknowledging the name or character of God. This might take place when Christians meet together to encourage one another or when they confess Christ before unbelievers in the world. That's what that sacrifice of praise looks like. And for me, when I look at this, I think this should be the natural response of a life changed by what Jesus did on the cross. <laughs> If you think about it, if you really, uh, really grasp what's been given to you, what's been done for you, what Jesus went and endured for you, how can you respond in any other way than praise and thanksgiving? I mean, somebody buys you a coffee at Starbucks and you're thankful. Why, why can we not give praise and thanks for what Jesus has done for us? How can we respond in any other way but proclaim his goodness? But the thing that stands out to me that, that, that actually hits me the strangest on this is it's called a sacrifice of praise. And I find that strange because I usually like to praise. I like to worship God. How can this be a sacrifice? But it's because sometimes you just don't feel like it. Anybody ever not felt like worshiping? Anybody ever not felt like coming to church? I'm the pastor sometimes I don't feel like coming to church. But the thing is, is that we live our lives with, with his desires as our priority. That means that we make his focus our focus. And that means that sometimes it's a sacrifice. Sometimes you don't want to sing. You don't want to praise. 
or the fruit of the lips. Uh, we're, we're talking about uh, in that commentary. We're talking about Hosea. The fruit of the lips is described as as somebody sharing the gospel with somebody. How I many sometimes that's a sacrifice? You might get embarrassed. Thank God that's about all you'll get in this country. Other countries you might get killed, but here we got you know we got to. It's so hard because we might get embarrassed. Somebody might look at us weird. But the reality is, is that, that sometimes it is a sacrifice to praise. But the thing is, is that I've always found for me personally that when I do it anyway, God always shows up. God always shows up. And typically my attitude changes right quick. I may start not wanting to do it, but once I'm there, I'm like, man, this is a good place to be. Amen? And then he goes on in, in uh, verse 16. He says, Do not neglect to do good and share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Another sacrifice that we can make as Christians is doing good and sharing what we have. How many know that you're supposed to do good? Amen. How many know you're not saved by doing good? Amen. You're not saved by doing good, but the, the Scripture says that you're actually saved for good works. You're supposed to do good after you got saved. You just got to make sure you got the cart in front of the horse or behind the horse and not in front of the horse. That's what happens. People think they're, they're you can do it that way. It's just weird. The horses get confused. But, uh, but that, that's what happened. People put the cart in front of the horse and they go, oh man, I got I to gotta do the right thing to make sure I can please God. I, how can I go and worship God? I mean, look at what I've been doing lately. I, you know, I just can't do it right now or I can't go to church. You know, people, I, I always love people. I, I can't go to church. If I walked in, it would, it would catch on fire. Man, I also got to deal with that sin of pride as well, apparently. So the, the thing is, though, is, is you're not supposed to be good before you go into church. You're not supposed to be good before you're saved. The, the, the reality, there's just a reality that you're not. So it's not doing good things that makes us right with God. It's, it's, it's being right with God that allows us to do good things. So as Christians, we're supposed to do good. And I think this one is a little bit easier to understand as a sacrifice, right? You don't have to think too hard about this one. There are some people I just don't want to be good to. Can I be honest with you? <laughs> some people, you just want to go the other way. You don't want to be good to them. But that's the thing is, is it doesn't say as Christians do good and share what you have with people that are, that are worthy of your goodness and your stuff, with people that are, that are, that are really nice, it says, do good and share what you have. Sometimes doing good can be exhausting too. Anybody ever feel like you just don't have anything left to give? It can be exhausting. It can wear you out. Especially if people aren't acknowledging what you're doing. You know, it's easy to keep doing good when everyone's patting you on the back. But what's, what real character is is when you're doing good and nobody even sees it. So we have to do good. We have to keep doing these things. That's why the Bible says, don't grow weary of doing good. I can't remember where it's at right now. It just, but the, the Bible says, don't grow weary of doing good. You want to know why it says that? Because it's possible to grow weary of doing good. That's why it says, don't neglect. Don't grow weary of doing good. Keep doing these things. Even if you don't feel like you are, are being acknowledged, even if you don't feel like people appreciate what you're doing. You know, it's, it's always easy to think about how Jesus would, would have felt in these situations. I mean, can you, I wonder if Jesus felt the same way knowing that when he was going to the cross, so many would reject him. So many wouldn't appreciate what he was doing. 
What if he neglected doing good just because he knew some people were going to take it the right way? And then what about giving stuff away? I mean, this one's easy to see as a sacrifice, right? When you give something away, logically that means that you have less. And boy, do Americans not like having less. You see, it's not so bad to give stuff away when you have a surplus. When you have a bunch of extra, it's easy to give a little bit away. But what about when you don't have a lot extra? And there really is a sacrifice to give what you have away. And notice how he says, don't neglect this. It's so easy to neglect these simple commands because we end up uh, like crawling in towards ourselves. You know, in this, this period that these readers are going through, they're dealing with persecution. They're dealing with, with all these difficult things, people coming at them, people attacking them, some of them even getting killed. And it would be so easy for them to want to retreat inward instead of reach out to others. And the author understood this. He says, hey, don't neglect it. Even if you feel like neglecting it, don't neglect it. Keep pushing and keep doing it. And then for us today, we're ingratiated in a culture where it's all about you, right? I mean, from, from the day we're born, we're told, look out for number one. Make sure you get yours. Take care of yourself first. Make sure that you're happy. That's the worst relationship advice you could ever get is to make sure that just you're happy. If you want to destroy your relationship, focus on making sure just you're happy. We're, we're told from the very beginning to live a life, always just look out for number one. And the world focuses on making you happy. But as Christians, we're, we're told to live a different way. That's why our lives should look different. We're supposed to treat others as more important than ourselves. You're not supposed to be concerned with your happiness. You're actually supposed to be concerned about other people. And the hard part is, is sometimes this is at the expense of your happiness, or your, you know, you, 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 have, uh, uh, you have just enough money for, for you to eat, but somebody needs food. So you give away half of your food, now you have less. You're sacrificing, but you're doing something good for somebody else. And sometimes just doing good towards people, just talking to people, saying hi, getting out of your comfort zone makes a difference. We're commanded to treat others as more important than ourselves. And it's true, you're going to look different than the world, but I think that's a good thing. And then he continues on in Hebrews 13, 17. It says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Oh, I love teaching on these verses. These are the verses that make me feel the most awkward. <laughs> the leader up here teaching on verses, talking about leaders. And you know, it, it's funny. I don't, it's not that I feel uncomfortable teaching on this principle. I feel uncomfortable teaching you on this principle. <laughs> right? If I was at another church doing this on behalf of another pastor, it'd be easy, right? But what happens is, is I see this stuff. I'm like, oh man, it's going to look like I'm just up there. Like, hey guys, look at me. What about me? What about me? And that's what I feel like. And, and even worse than that, not only are we talking about me, we're dealing with the words that, that probably the, the, the least liked four-letter word ever, obey. 
And then nobody likes submit either. I was looking at, uh, as I was going through this, I didn't write the notes down on them, but I remember quickly looking at some of the, the way the words are used. And, and the obey part is just simply a command to obey, but the submit part is this idea of obeying even if you don't agree with it or even if you don't like it, is, is how that word submit is supposed to be read. But I'm hoping that today that I have a couple things in my favor as I go over this. One, it's not like I was putting together a message about how you guys should all just obey me and do what I want. It's just the next verse in the list. And I don't skip any of the other hard verses, so I'm not going to skip this one. And two, I think that, um, and, and you know this because it's in the Bible, that it's advantageous of us to learn about these things. And here's the thing is I think a lot of people struggle with obeying and submitting. It's a hard thing. You know, especially in, you know, I, I think about when, when, when Paul was talking to Timothy, what did he tell Timothy? Let no one despise you for your youth. I mean, can you imagine? He's a young guy. Everybody out there is, is older than him. They've all lived life longer than him. And, uh, and now he's, he's, he's in charge. He's their pastor. And I, I just, uh, this idea of obeying and submitting is just tough for a lot of people. Some of it is because I think many people have been taken advantage of before. I think people have been, uh, you know, they've been in a church and they've had a leader that's, that's just not done right by them and, 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 and they ended up being dictators instead of somebody who was there watching over their soul like this, this verse describes. Sometimes I think it's an ego thing. Who are you to tell me what to do? I know better than you. I'm older than you. I've lived longer than you. I've done this longer. You know, we get this idea of, of what you think you're better than me. Well, we get ego that gets in the way. But one thing that we can't get away from is what the scripture says. So the good news is that I teach that I didn't write it. <clears throat> one thing we can't get away from is the Bible commands us to obey and submit to our leaders. And I want to be very clear. I'm not talking about abuse. I'm not ta- this is not a call for, for leaders in the church to be dictators. There's been a lot of churches that have failed because leaders abused what this is talking about. What I'm talking about is, is responding to good biblical advice and instruction and guidance. And here's why. Because as he's saying here, he says, you need to obey them for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who have to give an account. The reason that the congregation is told to respect and obey their leaders is because the leaders have been given a responsibility and will have to give an account for watching over those in their flock. I've been given a responsibility to watch over each and every one of you. And I have to give an account for what I teach, what I tell you to do, all of those things. I'm going to have to give an account. But my job is to shepherd the flock that God has given me. And you might not realize this, but it's not an easy job. Each and every one of you carry the weight of your own problems. You know what's going on in your life, the stuff that you're struggling with. The leaders in the church, the pastors in the church, they end up carrying their own stuff, but a little bit of everybody else's as well. Think about this, when you, those of you who have kids, when your kids are struggling, when your kids are hurting, when they're going through something, 
You feel that, right? You, you get to carry some of their weight. And it's very much like that with leaders in the church. Pastoring is like that. We get to carry the struggles and the pain and the suffering of everybody else. And I want to be clear, I'm not complaining. I'm just kind of giving you guys a little inside baseball. For those of you who have done it before, then uh, you, you know what I'm talking about. And if you don't, you know, hopefully you'll get a little understanding of what this is talking about here. And I'm not complaining because this is what I signed up for. Matter of fact, was I was, felt like God was calling me to be a pastor and I was talking to other, my pastors, and the advice they gave me was, if you can do anything else, do it. <laughs> it's true. Because that's the thing, that, that, that you have two options. If you're called to do it, you can't do anything else. It's like Paul said, woe to me if I don't preach the gospel. I don't think you can really truly understand that verse until you, 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 you're pulled into to leadership in some ministry when you're like, oh, I get it now. That's what he's saying because that's what he has to do. That's what he was called to do. He didn't have an option. Woe to, and, that, and that's the same way. So I'm not complaining. I knew, I, I knew what I signed Well, I didn't know what I signed up for, but I, I told God. <laughs> I told God that I would do it. And, and I'm not complaining. This is, this is what, my, my, what, what my role is in the church, is what God has called me to do. And I also think that, that God gives you everything you need to do what he's called you to do. He's given me enough grace to handle everybody's stuff. He's given me the, whatever I need to get through it. He's with me. So I'm not telling you this to complain or to whine or any of those things. I'm just trying to help you understand what I think this verse is talking about. I'm telling you this because I want you to know that any instruction that I give to you is genuinely done with your best interest at heart. And if you think about it, could you imagine a shepherd and he's got his flock of sheep. If they wouldn't allow themselves to be herded, they wouldn't stick together, they just went over and did whatever they want. It would be impossible for that shepherd to protect them. It would be impossible for that shepherd to keep them safe. And the same is true in the church. You know, as, as, a, as a leader, uh, my heart is always to, for you. It's to make sure that, 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 that you're being taken care of in whatever aspect it is. Any instruction or advice that I give, it's because I want what's best for you. I genuinely care about you. I genuinely care about the outcome of your life. But it's really hard to help people when you give them advice and counsel and instruction and then they just go do whatever they want and then they come back and life's still a mess. The reality is, is that what we do is, 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 is for your own benefit. Even if it doesn't seem like it. And I can tell you there are some things that make my job easier and there are some things that make it harder. You know, one of the things that I've been really blessed on and, and, and uh, hopefully, Blake, you won't mind me sharing this about you and Medea. She finally made the sermon and she's not even out here. Where's she at? <laughs> Hallelujah. So as you guys know, they're getting married here very shortly, but as they started courting and dating, you know, they, they came to us and they talked about it, to us about it and, and we laid out some guidelines. And I imagine, actually I know, it's been hard for them to deal with it and frustrating at times, but in the very beginning it was like, you guys are never to be alone together ever. You're always with somebody. And they've always been obedient. They, even if they didn't like it, they've always made sure they were doing the right thing. And then as they got 
closer to the, to the wedding date. You know, like, all right, you guys can go out on dates in public places together, just you two. But still, no being alone together. And as much as they don't like it and they're frustrated, and especially when I check up on them, I think that's probably when he gets frustrated the most. It's like, Dad, I already told you I was doing it. Leave me alone. I'm like, just checking. But it's because I care about them. I want them to have the, the, the best start in life when, they're, uh, when, when they start their life. I want everything to be great for them. So, and I'm so blessed, and, and they don't realize it, but they actually listen. Because can you imagine that they have a choice? And they could have done whatever they wanted and, and made all kinds of mistakes. And then in, in a year be wondering why things in their life was all a mess, why their marriage was struggling because they didn't do things the way God intended them to do them. And that would even make my job even more harder because I don't get to stop pastoring them just because they don't listen. Even if I want to sometimes. <laughs> Not them, I'm talking about all y'all. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> but when, when people work with us and understand my heart when I'm talking about things, it makes a huge difference. And I'm going to give an account for everything that I teach, everything I instruct, every piece of advice that I give. And I think the author here recognizes that that's a lot of weight to carry. So as Christians, we should recognize that when we don't work with our leaders, none of that responsibility that I have changes. It just makes what I have to do harder. And really, it adds to that weight. Because when, when people aren't walking with God, when they're not following biblical instruction, their life gets heavier. And as, my, as a pastor, I get to help carry that weight. So the scripture says here, it says, listen, obey them, submit to them, because they're looking over your soul's and they're the ones that are going to have to give an account. And he says, let them do this with joy and not with groaning. You know, the way Blake and Mireya handled what was going on before their marriage and, and, and how they handled it, even with, with the, any frustration that I may have given them, even though they may not have liked it very much, it allowed me to deal with that relationship with joy and not with groaning. And I'm so thankful for that. So I really do appreciate that. And, and uh, I don't think I've ever told you, but I do. And now it's recorded. So you can listen to it back later if I ever change my mind. <laughs> See, author says, and here's the deal, guys. This doesn't just apply to you guys. It applies to me as well. I have leaders that I submit to. I have pastors above me. So I think all of us need to make sure that, that this is the kind of people that we're doing, that we are. Because when we do this, it's better for your leaders because it allows them to lead effectively, but it's also better for you. He says, look, if you don't obey them, and it's, it's of no advantage to you because the reality is, is that good leaders are there for your benefit. And our goal is to see you thrive and to have a strong marriage and a strong relationship with God. And that is our goal. Amen? Amen. Well, hopefully that wasn't too awkward for any of you guys. It was only slightly awkward for me, but we got through it. Hallelujah. Then he goes on, Pray for us, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience, 
desiring to act honorably in all things. I urge you the more earnestly to do this in order that I may be restored to you sooner. So it seems here that the author is probably dealing with some persecution as well. So far, whatever has happened to him, they, the, and whoever's been traveling with him, they, they've behaved in a manner that they can have a clean, clean and clear conscience. That's what he says. He says, pray for us, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience. So they're dealing with some stuff, but so far, they've, they've operated in a godly manner. They have a clear conscience about whatever they've done. They don't have to be guilty or worried about it. They haven't made any mistakes. They've done nothing wrong so far. But he begins to ask for prayer so that he can continue to act that way. He says, listen, pray for us, guys, so that we can continue to act honorably, that we can continue to act and ensure that we're not going to have an unclear conscience in all the things that we do. And I can relate to this, and I think you can as well, because we talked about that earlier, right? Continue to do good, but after a while, it can wear on you, and it can, and, and it can, it can start to, to, to really bother you. And, and then after a while, you just really want to hug somebody and let them know that you love them, but it's hard. The truth is, is that even pastors want to reach out and strangle people sometimes. And fortunately, the Lord has given us grace not to do so. But uh, that's what he's going through. They're going through some tough stuff. And he says, hey, I want you to pray for me. Help us to remain strong, not to do anything stupid. And I think this is interesting because I've talked to missionaries in other countries and, and actually have heard reports from Christians in other countries where the persecution is really, really hard, where they actually literally fear for their life on a daily basis. One of the most interesting things to me is that, that, that they, they came up, we were at a conference, they come up and talk to him, and he says, you know what? Let me know. How can we pray for you? What can we do for you? And in my head, I'm thinking, man, they want to be praying for safety, you know, make sure you get us clothes and food. I'm, I'm thinking of all the, the mechanical stuff and, you know, the prayers to be, to, to, to be safe. But that's not what he asked for. He says, he asked for prayer to remain strong in their faith. He asked their prayer, uh, for prayer to not back down in the face of opposition. And I think that's what's happening here. He's not asking and this is interesting. He's not asking for freedom out of the situation. He doesn't say, would you guys pray that we would get out of this situation? He says, no, pray that while we're here, we can continue to act honorably. And then he says, I urge you the more earnestly to do this in order that I may be restored to you the sooner. He says, you know what? Help us to continue to act honorably because if we can do that, we know that we're going to get out of this situation. God's going to take care of us. And then we can be back with you. And I think that's how we should pray. I mean, if the funny thing is, is people often don't know how to pray. But if you just read your words, you can see instructions on how to pray all the time. Like here, maybe don't, when you're going through a hard time, maybe don't always ask God to remove you from the situation. But how about asking him for the strength to get through it, the strength to press on, the courage, the grace that you need. Now, I'm not saying don't ask to get out of it, but make sure that, that there's more to it than that. If you've got to be in it, you might as well get stronger, right? Amen. And then in verse 20, he says, Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, <coughs> the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with every good thing 
everything good that you may do his will, <coughs> pardon me, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Pardon me, I need to get a drink of water. My voice is uh, not doing well today. And this benediction right here is he's, uh, uh, <laughs> anybody know what the word benediction means? It's not eggs benediction in case you were wondering. <laughs> you know, it's funny, we have all these church words, right? Benediction, doxology, all these weird things. And I read them sometimes and, and, and uh, I read over them and I understand what they mean in their context, but I don't really know what they mean. Does anybody ever do that? Well, if you're wondering, benediction just means a pronouncement of God's favor upon them. So if you're ever wondering when it says this is a, a benediction, it's just a pronouncement of God's favor. So in this benediction, the author is actually beginning to tie together many things that he's been ministering on in this letter. One, he reminds them that God is the God of peace. And you think about the, the purpose of this letter, right? If we look back, he's really encouraging these people to remain in the faith. And we look at all the theology behind it. He talks about who Jesus is and his supremacy and, and, and the fact that he was a better sacrifice, all these things. But if you, if you boil it down to its simplest, all of that was just to convince these people to remain in the faith because they were going through some tough times. And they might be tempted to revert back to where they had came from. And he reminds them here that God is a God of peace because I imagine when you're going through those kind of things, you could use some peace, Amen. And fortunately, that's who our God is. He's the God of peace. And the scripture says that he provides. And she doesn't want to spitball. Look, she's standing up. <laughs> Either that, I'm boring her. She's got to stand up so I don't put her to sleep. <laughs> Hallelujah. Quit interrupting me. I'm trying to get some stuff done up here. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. <laughs> Unfortunately, that's who our God is, right? He's the God of peace, and he gives us peace that surpasses all understanding. That means peace when, when, by all accounts, by all logic, there should be no way you can have peace. He gives you peace in those situations, amen? And this God, he brought Jesus back from the dead, demonstrating that Jesus was an effective sacrifice and a superior high priest. The scripture says that it was his resurrection that, that, that demonstrated God's approval of what he had done. And his death and resurrection is central, is a central truth to the Christian faith. Without his death and resurrection, there's nothing. Matter of fact, Paul says that if Jesus wasn't resurrected, we are all to be pitied. Because if Jesus wasn't resurrected, then you and I aren't, you and I aren't saved. We don't have newness of life. But the good news is he was, amen? And Jesus, he's our great shepherd. That's what it says here. Our great shepherd. He gave his life on the cross. And in doing so, he secured us a better covenant with his blood. By the blood of the internal covenant, he secured us a better covenant by his blood. <laughs> and then the author asked God, the God who did this, who sent his son to give his life for them, to give them peace, to make them new, he asked them to equip them with everything that they would need, everything good that they would need to do his will. How many you know that God will give you everything that you need to do his will? And God, he's praying that God would give them everything that they need to live the life that he was just talking about, all those instructions. 
And then he says that he is working in all of us with what has been accomplished in Jesus Christ. The reality is, is that there was an expectation of fruit in their lives. They're supposed to be equipped with everything good to do his will, working those things that are pleasant in his sight. There was an expectation that their life would look different, and he even told them how their life should look. Amen? And then he says, I appeal to you, brothers, in verse 22, I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. This is an interesting statement to me. Because he's asking the author, he's asking the readers to bear with what I just told you. And this letter had a whole host of things. It was probably just like a fish upside the face to these readers. Right? Basically, it was a systematic dismantling of their previous belief system and saying that Jesus is better. There were words of, of there were commands in here, there were appeals, rebukes, there were warnings. And, and this was probably a hard letter for them to, to hear and to respond to and to understand. Or maybe he was concerned that they would just reject uh, what he wrote because it was so difficult. Because um, it's not really easy to have follow-up questions to a letter. You can't just ask the letter a question. Can you clarify this bit? Maybe he was concerned that they would not infer the love that he has for them. Or, their des- or his desire for their best. You know, it's actually hard to infer these kind of things from text on a page. That's why when you send people text messages, um, it's so easy to misunderstand what somebody is saying. It's probably why emojis were first invented, so you could kind of show how you were feeling what the problem is, and now that's become a whole language of its own. It doesn't always mean what it, you think it means, so it's still hard to infer. That's why people so easily get offended. We don't recognize how much of our, our communication is actually verbal. When you're talking to somebody and they're telling you something hard, you can tell if it's coming to be uh, an insult or to drag you down or if it's, it's meant to help you get through it by the way that they're standing and how their eyes look. You know, you can't get that from text on a page. So maybe he was worried that they, were, they would misunderstand where he was coming from. So he says, bear with my word of expertise. Bear with it. Even if it's hard, pay attention to it understand where it's coming from. He's like, listen, I've written to you briefly. 13 chapters. But he explained a lot in 13 chapters. I mean, it's taken us, what are we, 20-something weeks to get through all 13 chapters? I think we're on like 25 or 24 weeks, something like that. The truth is, is that what he just ministered to them could be the difference between them continuing to follow Christ or going back to their old system belief, the the old Judaic way of living. This was literally an eternal life or death outcome for them. He says, listen, don't reject this. Bear with this. He wants them to receive it and take it seriously. Amen. And then he goes on and says, you should know that our brother Timothy has been released with whom I shall see you if he comes soon. This is an interesting thing. This is probably the same Timothy that traveled with Paul. And it says here that he has been released. Nowhere else in the New Testament does it talk about Timothy being imprisoned. But he was at some point because he was baiting to be released. And at any rate, 
the author is, is probably one of the reasons why people will argue that maybe the author of this letter is Paul because he is talking about Timothy. But whoever the author is, he knows Timothy, he's his friend, and he's waiting for him uh, to, to join up with him. He's just been released, and he's hoping that if he makes it in time, then he will be able to take him with him when he goes to visit these readers. And then we'll go ahead and finish up here today in verses 24 through 25. It says, greet all your leaders and all the saints. Those who come from Italy send you greetings. Grace be with all of you. <laughs> so like most of these letters, he ends with a greeting saying, greet all your leaders and, and all the saints. And he doesn't mean greet all your leaders and all the super Christians. How many of you know that if you're born again, you are a saint? The, the, the Bible refers to Christians as saints. So he's saying this is probably a small, <clears throat> this may be just a small home church that he's writing this letter to. And he says, hey, make sure you greet all the leaders around you and, and all these other churches. Make sure you greet all the Christians around you. Let them know that I care about them and I love them as well. And then he goes on and he does the same thing in the opposite direction. He says, those from Italy send you greetings. So he's apparently in Italy right now writing this letter to the Hebrews and he's got a bunch of Christians around him and saying, hey, they want to tell you that they love you as well. And then finally he says, grace be with all of you. It's a fitting way to end this letter because grace is so important in a believer's life. And I think this is how we should all greet and pray for one another. We should be praying for grace in each and every person in this room on a regular basis because that's what we need. Because without God's grace, we have nothing. Amen? So as we wrap up here, remind you this letter has been written to remind his readers to remain in the faith and he makes the case for why they should that jesus is superior in every way to every other thing that came before him he's superior to moses he's superior uh, his sacrifice was superior to all the other sacrifices he entered into a holy place that was superior than the old holy places and his sacrifice was once and for all and because of these reasons, he said, you know what? You need to stick with Jesus. Remain in the faith. And I think for us today, when we read this, while I recognize the, uh, the, the risk of any of us in this room turning to Judaism is quite small, the reality is, is that we all have something that we came from. And there's always a risk that we could turn back to that. But we need to remain in the faith and understand that what Jesus did was enough, and there's nothing else that can accomplish what he accomplished. So church, let us be people that recognize the supremacy of Christ in every area of our life and maintain a life of faith. Amen? Amen. Let's go ahead and bow our head.